This is God's word from the prophet Malachi, beginning in verse 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says, they may rebuild, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country. And the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this. And you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. The grass withers. The flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Father in heaven, we ask that this word would not be rejected by us, your people, but that you, by the power of the Spirit, would now soften our hearts to receive the seed of the gospel and in receiving it, experience its power as it roots, and as it bears fruit, that it might through our lives proclaim the glories of your excellency, that our eyes indeed would see and our mouths would say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, exile for the people of Israel is long over by the time that Malachi is writing his prophecy. Haggai and Zechariah, two prophets who come previous to Malachi, have already written. We are roughly 75 years or more where the people of Israel have been back in the land, the promised land, after languishing for years in Babylon. The wall of Jerusalem is rebuilt. The temple has been rebuilt. Slowly but surely, the people of Israel are making their way back to the promised land after the decree of Cyrus. Not all rushing back at one time. First a remnant, then few a little more. Sacrifices are now being made on the altar again. There's beginning to be a slow uptick in the economy. Population is increased only slightly. But things are far from ideal in the nation of Israel. Zerubbabel was the king, the son of David, who had been on the throne of Israel, who really wasn't much of a king at all, for he was still under the power of foreign political rule. 
But by this point in time, he's already died. The high priest Joshua, who helped establish the the restarting of the sacrifices in Israel and the worship among God's people again, well, he's been laid to rest with the fathers as well. And Israel, though in the land, would say to us, if they were here, it's not like it used to be. The glories under King David during the the high ages of the people of Israel are, are not the way that it is now that we've returned. In fact, we are just a shadow of our former self. The glories of Israel have not returned. And there's sadness and disillusionment and discouragement among the people of Israel. There's even questions. Has God really been faithful to us? As you see in this text, has He really loved us? Worse than this, Israel has fallen back into all of the sins that previously marked them before they went into exile in Babylon. They're half-hearted once again in their worship, even unwilling to bring the best of their sacrifices to the Lord. They're careless about the truth. They're neglecting of their marriages and their families. They're intermarrying with with, uh, foreign idolatries. They're faithless in their covenant commitments. Though they're back in the land, and though this is a fulfillment of what God had promised, the people are not back spiritually. Though they are no longer in exile... In Babylon, they are well within the confines of the promised land. It's clear that the people of Israel are still in exile spiritually. That their hearts are far from the Lord. As we enter into the prophet Malachi, we need to know that setting. For it makes sense of why the Lord comes to the people of Israel as He comes to them. He comes to them with a word that's meant to arrest their attention, to stir their affections, to call them back to Him, the true lover of their souls. And as we start our journey into the book of Malachi, we see in these first five verses three things that will really unfold over the course of this whole book, but are in high relief here in these first five verses. And the first is that this is a weighty word. This book is a It's a weighty word. It's a weighty word that comes from, secondly, a wandering people. A wandering and even wayward people. But this weighty word that comes from a wandering and wayward people comes from a God who loves them with a wonderful love who loves them with a wonder-filled love. And God is pressing that into the people of Israel. He's pressing that into us today. People who might need to hear a weighty word. People who, though in church, as the people of Israel would have been, are wandering in our hearts from the Lord, still in exile. But a people who have grown numb to the realities of God's love need to once again to see It's wonder. A weighty word, a wondering people, and a wonderful love. Let's look at these three things together as we enter into Malachi together. 
And notice there in verse 1, the oracle. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Now, what is an oracle? Well, if you were to look at it historically in the ancient Near East, it was another word for a prophecy, another word for a declaration or an expression of, of usually a god or a demigod's word to a particular people. It was considered authoritative. It was, it was considered authentic. It was the kind of word that when it was spoken, it was a so shall let it be said, so let it be done kind of word. Malachi comes with an, with an oracle to the people of Israel. Now, sometimes this word, this oracle, is referring to the person themselves and not their message. And there's something of both of that happening here in verse 1. Sometimes the word is the oracle. Sometimes the person is the oracle. And there's a sense of collapse of those two things here in verse 1 in the prophecy of Malachi. We see this throughout the ancient Near East. Some of you will remember the oracle of Delphi, for instance, who was the mouthpiece for the Greek god Apollo, would have been well known even in, in, in times just after Malachi in the advent of the Lord Jesus Christ's incarnation. Now, some of you, though, will more readily remember the oracle in that, well, that wonderful movie, The Matrix. Right, you'll remember when Neo, who is considering his uh, future and his sense of whether he is the one, and the regarding his calling, he has to go meet this grandmotherly figure baking cookies, who is the oracle who will tell him about his future. And as she does, Neo receives it with a sense of weight. It's a weighty word that she has for him. It's a weighty word that Malachi has here for the people of Israel. There's question regarding whether Malachi is the actual name of the prophet who writes this prophecy. Yes, I know your English Bibles say Malachi at the top. I understand that. But it could be that it's actually a title for the weightiness of this message. The word Malachi in the Hebrew is rarely used as a proper noun. And in fact, we primarily see it used as a proper noun only here. That's not me questioning whether Malachi is the writer or not, just the uniqueness of the use of this word. The word literally means messenger. Here is an oracle given by a messenger. This is an oracle, a word of authoritative prophecy given by a messenger. We might say it's an oracle from an oracle. It's a word of prophecy from an oracle. He's coming here with the people of Israel with a word that's a weighty word. Now, why do I say it's a weighty word? Well, I'm not just making that up. The word oracle in the Hebrew literally means burden. Malachi comes with a burden. He comes with a burden to the people of Israel. The word that he has come to declare to them is not a light word. It's not a flimsy word. It's a, it's a substantive word. It's a word full of, of power and glory. It's a word that is burdened. There's a sense in which Malachi has the yoke of prophet on him. 
When you read about the calling of the prophet throughout the Old Testament, you never see happy-go-lucky prophets. When you're looking at the prophet Jeremiah, for instance, he's given a prophecy where he will for 40 years go and minister among the people of Israel, and they will for 40 years hear him prophesy, and they will not listen. No one signs up for this calling, you understand. The prophet Hosea, written not long before Malachi's, is a difficult, challenging prophecy that has where the prophet himself has to go through the betrayal that the people of Israel are constantly making towards God himself, giving to them difficult words among a people who continue to adulterize in their relationship with the Lord. Isaiah actually refers to the calling of the prophet by a word that is akin to suffering. It's a yoke. It's a burden that's on the oracle Malachi, but he's burdened not simply because he's a prophet in his calling. He's burdened by also the content of that calling. The very things that he must now express to the people of Israel come to him with a heaviness upon them because he knows that the people are prone to not listen to these words. I was sobered this week looking at Acts 7 again and, and reading Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7. I encourage you to read it maybe this afternoon. The first martyr in, in Christian history, as, at least as far as the New Testament's concerned, there as he preaches that sermon in Acts chapter 7 and is stoned ultimately by the Jews themselves, these Israelites, he says there, was there not one of the prophets that you didn't reject or try to kill? Hmm. Burdened is Malachi. Burdened is Malachi. Burdened in his calling, burdened in his, in his content of that which he must express. And he's wondering, as we're wondering as we enter into the prophecy, can the people of God bear a weighty word from the Lord? That's a question you need to ask your heart, you see. It's a question all of us need to ask our hearts as we enter into the prophecy Malachi. Can you bear a weighty word from the Lord? Can you bear a weighty word from the Lord? You know, so often we come to church, don't we, in order to be encouraged, and we mean that in some um, uh, light and hope-filled way. And yes, that's appropriate, and, and I certainly hope and pray that God will meet us in that way. But do you treat, as it were, the worship of God's people almost like an escape from the difficulties of life? Here, just sort of pondering just the happy parts of the Scripture, only the honeyed and good words that you, that you sort of favor from the Lord? Do you only go to those favorite passages that, that make your heart go pitter-patter? Are you okay by going to the darker and deeper words where God is speaking to you of his unchanging love, but he's doing so in the way that a loving parent rebukes a rebelling teenager? Can you bear a weighty word from the Lord? It's a problem for the people of Israel. It's a problem for the church today, you see. Paul told us it would be so in 2 Timothy 4.3. Time will come when they will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. That time is now, my friends. That time is not coming. That time is now. It's all around us, you see. 
We're prone to itchiness of ears. We're prone to listen, aren't we, to sermons that we're already assuming the outcome of and that the preacher will say what it is I already believe and affirm the things that I already, already know and give me the assurance that I long for. Can we bear a weighty word? Can we be corrected? Can we be rebuked? It's a sign of maturity, if we can be, that our minds can be changed, our hearts can be pricked, we can be convicted. It's a weighty word that Malachi comes to us as the people today and will be carrying for us in the weeks to come. It's meant to lead us into repentance. Why does he come with a weighty word? Because we're a wayward people. Because we're a wayward people. We're a wandering people. The people of Israel are a wandering people. They're a wayward people. Notice the start of the prophecy. You can hear it. Notice the start of the prophecy. I have loved you, says the Lord. Oh, what a wonderful start to this prophecy. It's going to change quickly. What a wonderful start. You're like, oh, I love Malachi. I have loved you, he says. And the people of Israel respond, how have you loved us? And you go, oh, don't you? Doesn't it almost take your breath away? But you say to me, how have you loved us? Notice the back and forth. Do you hear the, the argument? Do you hear an argument starting at the beginning of this prophecy? Do you see a dispute that's now happening? I want you to see that the whole of the prophecy of Malachi is a dispute. Let me give you a couple of examples. If you have your Bibles open, this will help. Uh, notice in verses 6 and 7 of Malachi chapter 1, Notice a similar structure. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? Hear it? Sounds, should sound very familiar to the first couple of verses here. Look at, look at verses verse. In chapter 2, verse 17, chapter 2, verse 17, these are just a couple of examples. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? Look at chapter 3, verse 7. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? You catching a theme here? It's a prophecy full of dispute. It's a prophecy full of argument. Now, when you hear this in the text, don't, don't hear it in any kind of charitable fashion, right? When he says, I have loved you, the people of God are not saying, oh, please recount for us the way that you have loved us. We would love, oh dear, go on and on and on about all the ways that you have loved me. No, this is not an invitation for information about the depth of love. This is an allegation. This is a doubtful allegation levied against the Lord saying, how have you loved us? Go and prove to us, supply us the evidence that you have truly been loving. It does sound a little bit, doesn't it, uh, to the 
like teenage rebellion. No offense to our teenagers in here. The Israelites are actually far, far worse than any of you probably in this room at this point. But it's like, I mean, it's homecoming season, right? I mean, some of you have been, you know, homecoming football games and you've been homecoming dances and all of this. I might have had a couple of children do such things and and, and, you know, you've given them, you know, you've, they, you've bought dresses for the dance and you've, you've, you've filled the car full of, full of gas and, and you've given them the, the keys and you've, and then, I mean, you've, you've done all of these things for them. And then you say, remember your curfew, be home at midnight. And they say to you, I, I knew you hated me, right? <laughs> right? I knew you hated me, right? But this is, this is our tendency, isn't it? This, I, I, we laugh, but we, isn't that our tendency? Isn't that our tendency? That's not, that's, that's our tendency. That's our souls, isn't it? I mean, like God is over and over being so faithful to you. And then one thing happens. You go, I don't think he loves me. I don't think, I think, I knew he hated me. I knew he was out to get me. The people of Israel are in that sort of posture. Notice that they're measuring, their heart is as such that they're measuring the love of God by what they would expect or want him to do, not by what he's done. Not by the faithfulness of what he's done. They're, they're looking at what they wished he had done, what they expected him to do. He's not measured up to their expectations. And thus they're now judging the fact that he doesn't love them. This is a spirit of a wandering people. This is a spirit of a wayward people. Do you catch any thanksgiving here? Do you catch any sense of abundance? Any affection for, uh, for the Lord? No, these are fighting words. This is dispute. It's a weighty word given to a, a wandering people, a wayward people. And here's what's remarkable is that God responds by asserting his wonderful love. His wonderful love. And how do I see that in this text? Well, We'll, we'll spend some time this week and then some time next week, undoubtedly, on this, this theme because it needs some unpacking. But notice verses 2 and 3 in, in the text. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? And the Lord responds exactly how all of us would respond. Is not Esau Jacob's brother? You go, what in the world is this? It's not Esau, Jacob's brother, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. What an unusual response. He responds to their allegation, their questioning of doubt by giving his own question. It's not Esau, Jacob's brother. Now he's really from one, one level you would expect him here at this moment to sort of say, how have you loved us? And you would almost expect him to say, you better have a seat. This is going to take a while for me to tell you all of the ways that I have loved you over the thousands of years and generations that I've cared for you. That's sort of what you'd expect a laundry list here from the Lord asserting all of the ways in which he's cared for the people of Israel. You don't get that. You get a question. And the question you get is, is Esau Jacob's brother? Now, it's really interesting when you realize that Malachi is the final book of the Old Testament, isn't it? You know, when you, you get to the end of Malachi and you turn over the, the page in your, your English text and you see the New Testament, right? It moves into Matthew. And just to 
Well, get you excited. You know, the holidays will be right around the corner. As soon as we finish Malachi, we're going we're gonna to inch during the Advent series right into Matthew. So you're just going to turn a few pages in your Bible. and We're going to see there's a connection between Malachi and Matthew that we'll be able to see through Advent and through Christmas, which will be, I think, really helpful to us. But notice here what Malachi reveals from the heart of the Lord is he says, I want you, Israel, to go back to the very beginning of the story. Where's the story of Jacob and Esau? Well, it's in the book of Genesis. We're at the very end of the Old Testament. He says, listen, if you want to really understand my love, you're going to need to go back to the very beginning of the Bible. You're going to have to know the redemptive story of the the whole of what I have done for you since the very beginning. You've got to go back to the story of Jacob and, and Esau. Now, when you, when you hear Jacob and Esau, you have to do, as the Bible often does, and I just want to encourage you in your reading of the Bible and your study of the Bible, when you see something peculiar, it's usually meaningful. It's usually meaningful. So if God answers this question by appealing to Esau and Jacob, he's wanting you to ponder Esau and Jacob. If you immediately don't understand that, that's okay. You're not supposed to immediately understand that. You're supposed to do exactly what the Bible tells us to do over and over, and that is meditate on the Word day and night, Psalm 1. Meditate on the Word, Joshua 1. Sit in the question. Sit in the question. Is not Jacob Esau's brother? Jacob, yet I have loved him. Esau, I have have hated. Go back to the beginning and remember these two brothers. These two brothers that are in some sense the whole story of the Bible. Those two brothers who point out for us the two seeds that run throughout the Old Testament. The seed of the woman that will ultimately crush the head of the serpent and the seed of the serpent who will bite the seed of the woman on the heel. Do you remember that text in Genesis 3.15? The first telling of the gospel? These two seeds that run side by side throughout the Old Testament, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, right just previous to Jacob and Esau, didn't we see Isaac and and Ishmael? Yes, we did. And just previous to Isaac and Ishmael, didn't we see Abraham and everyone else? And just previous to that, didn't we see Noah and the rest of, of history? And did we not see ultimately... You know, Cain and Abel going all the way back to the beginning, these two, these brothers, these seeds that run all the way through the book of Genesis, ending with Joseph and who? His many brothers, right? All of these stories of the seeds that run all the way through the book of Genesis, he goes, says, go all the way back to those twins. Because inside that mother, inside that mother, Rebecca, was the reality of two nations, two seeds. One in whom I've loved and one in whom I've hated. One in whom I've loved and one in whom I've hated. Now think just for a minute about those two brothers, those twins, Jacob and Esau. They couldn't have been more different. Esau, the older brother, comes out before Jacob. Do you remember the story? You remember how in Genesis 25, Jacob is holding on to the heel of Esau? 
In fact, the name Jacob means heel grabber, which is, as it were, a kind of idiom in Hebrew that means a sneaky one, a trickster of sorts. Well, he lives up to that name, doesn't he? He saw this manly man who's, um, you know, covered in, you know, red indoor-outdoor turf of some sort. He's got red hair all over him. He's a hairy man from head to toe. He's a hunter-gatherer uh, type. He's a man's man. And then you've got mama's boy, Jacob, who can't grow a beard, um, who's in the kitchen cooking, cooking stew. And do you remember the moment these two polar opposite brothers, you know, they're they're, they're, they've got to be fraternal twins, right? And as he comes in famished from the field, Esau smells the stew that Jacob is making, and, and Jacob sees this trickster as an opportunity. <laughs> Jacob says, you know, I'll give you a little bit of my stew if you'll give me uh, your birthright, because those are completely equal. <laughs> That's a great deal. Anyone who has eyes could see it. Now, just hold on for a minute. Let's just remember these are brothers. Is this the way brothers should act? No, it's not the way brothers should act. Should, should, shouldn't Jacob just give his brother a bowl of stew? No strings attacks. Of, of, sure, of course he could. But what's he doing? He's going to trick him. And, and, and you know, I don't know what's worse. Was it, was it the trick of Jacob or it was the fact that Esau actually did it? That he, that he actually said, you know, you're right. The whole heritage of my father matters nothing to me in light of some, some, some wonderful squirrel giblet in my stew. What's worse, right? These, these two men are completely undeserving. These two men are completely undeserving. They come from the same family. They come out of the same womb. They come wrestling two nations, two different seeds coming out of the same person. And he says here, Jacob, I loved you. And Esau, I hated. Now, if we had more time, we would spend a while unpacking this. But I want you to hear this one wonder-working, wonder-feeling love that God is trying to impress upon the people of Israel when they ask, how have you loved us? He's saying to them, could you not see that it was within my prerogative to have chose Esau more than you? There was nothing you did. There was no good in you. There was no condition you fulfilled. There was no righteousness in you. In fact, when you look over the narrative of Jacob, you, you dislike this man all the way to his toenails. He's despicable, every single part of him. And God says, I set my love on you. When the last thing you deserved was my love, I set my love on you. And you ask me, how have you loved us? How have you loved us? You could have easily have been Esau. That's how I've loved you. I've set my love, I've chose you. And all of my affection, I have poured out on you. Jacob's heritage is right now, notice verses 3 through 5, Jacob's heritage, his hill country, is eaten up by jackals. He has no heritage. I've brought you into the land. Jacob's country will be known as wicked. You will be known as the promised land, my people. 
I have set my love upon you, but judgment falls upon him forever. I could have easily have made you Esau. Don't you see? I have chosen you from before the foundation of the world. And you don't deserve it. Do you know what should happen to our hearts when we realize that this is not just Israel's story? This is our story. Do you know what should happen? You know where your mind often goes? Your mind goes, well, what about the Esau's? Let's lay that aside for a second. We'll pick that up. We'll come back to that. If you have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ today, I want you to say, why am I a Jacob? Why am I a Jacob? I'm astonished that he would lay his love on me. I know who I am. I'm no better than Esau. In fact, when you read my story, it's worse than Esau's. And yet through God and his kindness and his providence, he opened my eyes to see his glorious grace. He renewed my soul and regenerated me and gave me the gift of faith where I trusted in Christ alone for salvation. And though each and every day I leave him, his love is unchanging and it continues to pursue me and leads me to repentance. And I know it's not of me. I know it's not of me. You see, that's the response he's looking for. That's what the prophet Malachi is looking for. He's looking for you and for me to wake up to his undeserving and unconditional love for you. That's what he's doing. That's what he's doing. We get caught up in the questions of the mysteries of the sovereignty of God, and we can explore those. We will. Don't miss the point that every single one of us deserve the end of Esau. And by God's mere pleasure in his unconditional and undeserving love, we have the heritage of Jacob, he's saying. Friends, today, I don't know if you can feel and experience that burden, do you see? If you're seeing this and you're experiencing, there's something of a holy burden of love. That's why I referred to this sermon even as a, a weighty love for a wandering people. Doesn't that, doesn't that settle on you in a weighty way? Different kind of context, but a similar kind of experience. I was relating to a few in the Exploring Cornerstone class last weekend. Just about how you recognize the waywardness of our own hearts and how quickly that happens and how any of us, if you think that you're immune to it, oh, you are in such grave danger. And I was relating the story of my own ordination service. As I was taking vows, having received a, a charge from my, dear, my dear friend, Derek Thomas, who many of you know, Raising my hand and giving vows to ordination, the commitment of what it would mean to be a pastor in the Presbyterian Church in America, uphold uh, the character that is worthy of walking, worthy of Christ and of a minister of the gospel, just humbled by this incredible charge. And right to my right was another man taking the same ministerial vows. It was a dear friend who I walked with throughout seminary and partnered with in the work of, of ministry. Right to my right, taking all the same vows, and today is not in ministry. 
for very good reasons that everyone in this room would agree with. Why me? Why me? Do you feel that? Do you feel that? Except it's more sobering than a call to ministry. It's a call of eternal love, you see. Ministry will come and go. There'll be a day where Nate will be out of business. There'll be no need for ministers in the new heavens and the new earth. There'll be no need for them. Ministry comes and goes. You know what doesn't come and go? The eternal love of God for squirrely Jacobs like you and me. Why you? Let that astonishment settle on you like a weight, a beautiful weight, and make you long to live in the richness of the deposit of that love, knowing it's real and knowing it's for you in Christ Jesus. Today is the day of salvation, you see, to wake up afresh to the astonishment of God's love. May he do that in this prophecy for us and call us back to the way everlasting. Oh, Father in heaven, would you please give us that kind of stirring in our hearts, waking us out of the slumber, the spiritual stupor that too often marks our lives. Bring us back off of the bypass onto the narrow way, not simply with a word of shame. Oh, I can't believe you did that. If you were a Christian, you wouldn't do that. That's not the voice that you give us here in this text. The voice you give us in this text is, remember I set my love on you. Unconditionally, undeservingly, I set my love upon you out of my mere good pleasure. Lord, today, for those who can hear that word and be stirred by the weight of that love, let it be to them a joy. And let it be to all of us a motivation that we would be people who follow you and love you in the way that we've been loved by you. Oh, Lord, freshen us in this way for your glory and namesake. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.